Hello and welcome to The Blind Photographer. My name's Adrian Silas, and I'm delighted to be co-hosting this show with David Katz, who's become one of the world's leading advocates on behalf of visual impairment, and has risen through the odds to become one of the great photographers of his generation. Thanks so much, Aid. It's great to be uh, working with you on the podcast and love to say welcome to our listeners. David, with a celebrated career in media on Fleet Street as a photographer to the rich and famous, royalty, uh, lords and ladies, you photographed everybody anywhere in the world. There are few people who know that actually you are a registered blind photographer. Someone who actually can see the secret that you had your entire life from birth. That in itself, means you've excelled at what you've done. Yeah, that's correct, Aid. Uh, I was told, or my parents were told at three months that I should be registered as blind. And although they didn't register me, uh, I registered much later, I was diagnosed with an astagmus, which for our listeners that are not familiar with that, it's actually a neurological condition that causes rapid eye movements and different levels of sight restrictions dependent on personal situation. And basically people with the condition condition will be suffering from a lack of depth perception, often balance problems like myself, and struggle with judging distance. We also have photophobia, which is a problem with bright light and contrast, and different people have different levels. So, David, you've explained very eloquently your condition and issues. The reason I'm your co-host and you've chosen me is because I too suffer from nystagmus. Your nystagmus from birth, mine diagnosed a few years ago. So in this show, in the podcast, we want to break down perceptions, start getting people to think about visual impairment, not as a stigma, but as something to be embraced. And in this series of podcasts, and people will be talking to other people suffering from it, who've risen above the odds, who've risen to do great things like yourself. That's the purpose of this show. Very exciting. Exactly. And and this was why it was so important in our first podcast for me to bring in Sir James Galway. Obviously, he's known as a globally renowned flutist. Sir James is, is a living legend. He's a true artist and a musical mentor to millions. He also happens to have nystagmus like us and is actually the patron of the Nystagmus Network. Sir James has been a, a role model for me throughout my life. And earlier this week, I was actually lucky enough to have the chance to chat with him and his wonderful wife, Lady Jeannie. Okay, David, please tell me on a scale of one to 10, how excited were you when you knew you were going to speak to Sir James and Lady Galway? Well, I'd, to be honest, it was actually off the scale. For me, it was the fulfilment of one of my life's dreams. Okay, so let's listen to that interview for ourselves right now. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real honour. What I would like to, to do at this point is to tell a little story about why it was so important for me and so, such an honour to have you guys, Sir James, Lady Galway, on our first podcast. I have told you guys the story, but I want to tell the audience. I feel it's, it's very important. When I was seven years old, I was just starting to understand that I had a serious visual impairment. Uh, like Sir James, uh, I have nystagmus and everything that goes with it. And in school was becoming very difficult and kids were just starting to to notice things and they noticed that my eyes moved and um, I started to have trouble. I couldn't see the blackboard so I had to walk to the board or have my desk right up against the board or as well I was being called names like wobbly eyes and goggle eyes and cat's eyes which was obviously a very easy one because my, my name is Cat's. Now, at that time, which was in the early 70s, Michael Parkinson, for, for our listeners and viewers, maybe in America who are not familiar with him, had a wonderful chat show that pretty much half of the country watched as, as the main interviewer in England. And I was in bed, as I would be on a Saturday night. I could hear some very excited noises coming from, uh, from my parents. And uh, I thought I was going to be called down to watch the football match of the day, but uh, they had other ideas. And they called me down and uh, they said to me, look at this guy on the television playing the flute. And 
I obviously didn't want to go straight up to the television because I was still in denial at that point, but I had to go very close to the television. And after all the years or all the time of my parents wonderfully encouraging me and telling me that I could do everything, everything was possible, no such word as can't, I still had never seen anybody with the same condition as me. The doctors treated us like case studies and I noticed there was a a man on there playing the flute like I'd never heard anything in my life. And what I also saw was how he was moving his head and his eyes, which were just like mine. And that single moment inspired me for the rest of my life. And it shows how one person can make such a difference. I had wonderful parents who encouraged me greatly. But without seeing Sir James, a world famous flutist on the television that night, I went back to school feeling I could do anything. And although obviously it was still very tough, I knew that I could achieve anything because there was a guy on Parkinson who turned out to be the the, the world famous James Galway. The, and you inspired my life and and now I'm in a position where I'm able to give back after a, a, a career as an internationally acclaimed photographer, which is not a job people would expect. But you know that I, I wanted to thank you personally and I'm so honoured that you're on our first podcast because this is going out to a lot of other visually impaired kids and families and parents. So on behalf of myself and behalf of all the people that are going to see this. Thank you so much, Sir James. Pleasure. Beautiful story. Sir James, when when were you actually first diagnosed with a, a visual impairment? I think it must, been, it must have been about when I was 11 or something like that. But, I mean, they knew that I had a visual impairment because I, when I went to school, I, I had to sit near the blackboard to, in order to read it. How did you feel about the diagnosis when you actually got it? Did you understand what it meant? No, no idea. <laughs> no idea at all. They didn't explain it to you, your, the, the doctors in any way. You just got on with it. Well, nobody mentioned nystagmus, that's for sure, until later on. So how was you getting by from, from a, a young boy up until the time of 11 when, when there was some kind of diagnosis? Oh, I just stuck my nose right up against the object to be seen and did it that way. It got as near as possible to the object I was trying to see. And, and was there any comments from, from anybody in relation to like what I just mentioned, that people could see movement in the eyes, other kids or adults? Not, not really, not really. Obviously, your family were aware of it. What were their responses? How did they react and what kind of encouragement did they give you, if any, at that point? Well, I I don't know what they knew or what they were told, but they didn't pass it on. They just let me get on with it. And I think that was the best thing because I, I didn't have any stigma about what I'd got, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. That's a very interesting, uh, obviously there are different approaches, but you're going back to a very specific time where that was more the rule, wasn't it, than than how things are today. Yeah. So in my own personal case, what happened was my grandmother, when I was three months old, noticed that my eyes were moving in a way that was slightly beyond what you would expect from a newborn. This was 1966. And they managed to get an appointment with the leading expert professor in the country at that time, who ran some tests and told them very, very bluntly and very rudely that he's completely blind, register his, uh, him as blind, that's it. And unfortunately, that scarred my parents for life. Fortunately, my parents believed that you use everything that you have. You don't, you don't concentrate on what you haven't got. You concentrate on what you have got. And they very bravely put me into a, a regular school and did everything they could to encourage. But that left a very great scar the way they were treated. And this is something that's very prevalent in what I'm seeing now, even now in, in, in the 21st century. Do you know from your parents at the time what their experience was dealing with doctors or did they just not pass it on to you? No, they didn't really pass it on to me. They just let me get on with it. And every now and again, they take me to the hospital for a test. 
And then when I was about, I think, 13, I got my first glasses. 13? Well, that was a long time. Yeah. That is a long time to go without glasses. And, and th- thinking back to your school days, how did the, the visual impairment, I mean, what, what, what we called back in the day being partially sighted, how did, what impact did that have on you? You mentioned, which is something that, that a lot of us can equate with, the situation with the blackboard. Sitting up front. Yeah, that's the only thing that, that really bothered me. But uh, the teachers were accommodating and they let me sit at the front. But you had very small classes also, didn't you? I think there was something like about 39 or 40 yeah. kids oh, in my class. Yeah, too small, yeah. And, and what was it like writing and reading from textbooks and things like that? And I know from my own experience when you, there wasn't enough te- textbooks and we were asked to share and things like that, how was that? Well, we weren't asked to share and I just have my own textbook and stick my nose right up to it so, so I could see what was going on. So it sounds like they, the teachers were quite accommodating, which is very like nice to hear. What was actually the situation with the blackboard? Because that's something that affects a lot of us. I mean, we, we tend not to want to sit in the front of the class. You, you, you mentioned your own um, thoughts about being further back. Yeah, you know, the, the clever kids were at the back and oh. the less clever kids were at the front. And oh. I hated this sitting with all these guys, you know. Oh, really? That's interesting. And I, I remember one altercation in the in the class that one one kid in about the third row was talking about something or other and, and arguing with another kid. And the teacher said, what are you two talking? What's going on? And one guy said to the teacher, oh, he called me stupid. And she says, well, you are, so shut up. <laughs> Could you imagine that happening today? No. <laughs> a different time, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think uh, that would go down too well today. Didn't you have to also hold your book a certain way when you were very young? Well, yeah, I, I held my head in a, in a way. When I turned my head to the left, my eyes would become stationary on the right, and then I could see better. And you learned that yourself, Sir James, just by trial and error? Yes, it's funny that you, you say that because um, I actually learned that through you, but I'll, I'll speak more about that in a, there's actually a name for it. It's called the null position, N-U-L-L. It's known that people with our condition basically move their head in such a way to get the maximum amount. We're never going to improve it dramatically, but we can give ourselves the maximum sight. And no one ever told me and my parents about this. When I was a kid, I only learned about it properly 10 years ago that it was an actual real thing and it wasn't just me and you. Because up until that point, the only person I'd ever seen do it was you and I learned that from you. So... When you were in the front of the class, uh, closer to the blackboard, obviously part of the condition for us is that bright lights or um, depth perception, things like that can have an effect even when we're close. How was that for you? Uh, I can't say it's so long ago. That's understandable. But light bothers you anyway. A lack of light bothers me. No, but also like when you're sitting, you ha- you can't face the window a certain way. Because the light from outside, you know, we're in the lounge at the airport. The light's always bothering you coming through. You always sit the other way. I tend to sit with my back to the window all the time. It's a it's a, a well-known part of the condition that, again, we're, we're not really told. It's like you think everybody has that problem, but everybody doesn't. It's light sensitivity and photophobia that all of us with nystagmus have issues looking directly, you know, if the sun's shining brightly or just adapting to, to different light. It's a very common aspect and, and it affects the way we see contrast. So it's something that our, our audience will be very familiar with. So, James, um, were you a very active child, as in playing sports and, and getting up to mischief like all the other kids were? Not really. By the time we, we got to our secondary modern school, where we used to walk from the school to the park, which was adjacent to the school, and they had football pitches and cricket pitches and everything else like this, I used to just bring my flute and I would play the flute and everybody would march along, you know, to... <laughs> <laughs> and then when when they started playing rugby or cricket or whatever they played, I would sit down and tootle away on the flute and practice. Except one one day it didn't work because we were playing, I think we were playing the girls at, at a game of cricket 
they were one man short on the on the men's team, and they said, "Jimmy, you've got to you've got to play. You've got to get ready to play just in case. It'll probably never happen, but just in case." Well, this this just was the case, and it did happen. All the guys were out, and I was in, <laughs> and we just needed one run. So, one kid come running up to the pitch with a ball, threw it at me. I took a swing at it, and it actually connected. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> And we got the one thing that we needed. So I was a hero for a day. Yay! After that, I was just Jimmy. <laughs> Fantastic story. So so many of the kids and the adults that share our condition um, are actually petrified of sport. So to hear a story like that, they just can't judge the distance of the ball and stuff. Like I, I was a sports fanatic, so I just did it and, uh, you know, managed to, to stop the ball with my head on many occasions. But that's a wonderful story. I mentioned already that you were an incredible source of inspiration to me in my life and career, but who or what were your inspirations? Uh, who inspired you as a child and, and how did they help you to, to stay motivated? Well, for some reason or other, I didn't really need much motivation. I just was so enamoured. I, I just played the flute all the time trying to figure it out sort of thing you know like kids today with their iphones the flute was my iphone in a way and uh there were there were some sources of in inspiration one was my my teacher muriel who was a singer but she also studied flute as a second study at the royal academy but she was a professional singer and she did very well came to ireland and started to teach me and then after that i went to the royal college but before I did, I got so enamoured by Geoffrey Gilbert, who was the solo flutist of the Royal Philharmonic, which was Sir Thomas Beecham's orchestra, of course. And I used to get the Radio Times every week, go through it with a pencil, take off all the things that I wanted to listen to, and I couldn't wait till they'd get on there and play their piece. So that, that they, these were my my teachers, really. And, and of course, uh, my... I had a wonderful teacher for three years called John Francis, and John had me live in his house with him and the kids. That's absolutely wonderful. Moving on to your career as a world-famous musician, where did it all start for you? Well, I think it started at, at home when I first started to learn a flute, and I, I heard all these people playing flute. And I think, oh, that, that's, I don't want to sound like that. How do you get this sound? How do you do that? And I just went at it till I could get it. But uh, I wanted to say one, one thing. There was another couple of amateur flute players who were a big inspiration. One was my Uncle Joe, and he learned from my grandfather. My grandfather taught my father and my Uncle Joe. And I learned with my Uncle Joe because at the time I was sort of about nine years old, going on 25 I wasn't talking to my dad. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> and I just learned with, with my Uncle Joe then. Uh, I went to the other side of the town for flute lessons from another amateur flute player who ran a big flute band. That I did that for a bit. And then I learned with uh, one of the guys in a band was a very good singer. And he learned singing from, from Muriel, my teacher, and he also learned a flute with her. And he was a great, he was a terrific flute player. And I really enjoyed, I, I was using him as my master. So tell me, though, why the flute initially, as opposed to, uh, say, the violin or uh, another instrument? Well, I had a go at the violin, but there were two things that got in the way. One were this horde of Irish woodworms who were chomping away at my violin. <laughs> and the other one was my condition. So I couldn't play forward like this. I had to play sideways like this. And then the, the music stand got in the way of the bow. and uh, <laughs> It wasn't very successful. So eventually the woodworm gained control and I gave up the violin and took up the flute because we actually had one in the house. 
Ben, you could also see the music a certain way, yeah, right? Even to this day, stick my nose right that. on it. Yeah. Again, that'll be so relevant to to our audience of of people ha- you, that other people take for granted of just being able to pick up any instrument and not worry. But obviously, you know, you can see the difference as someone who who has a visual impairment with the flute as opposed to a, a violin and having to be further back. So, and and obviously the woodworm as well. That's amazing. Yeah, just wondering how musical they all were, these woodworms. <laughs> you could have had a bit of, a, of an orchestra going on there. Yeah, right. <laughs> so tell me, what, what other challenges can a visual impairment cause when learning an instrument, do you think, and, and how could people get around this? How did you, you've explained how you did it, but how would you say that people with our kind of condition could develop as musicians? This is very difficult to say because each case is different. And the one thing that binds us all together is the love of doing what we want to do. The drive you have to become successful at it. Whatever you're going to play, I mean, if you're going to play a woodwind instrument, don't play a bassoon because it gets in the way of the music. I mean, it's this huge thing. You have to sit well back. And uh, oboe, clarinet and flute, you can get really on to it. I um, I know that a situation that all of us have to come to terms with is in the beginning, especially in the beginning, and that we develop is our memory because obviously you know we don't want to be showing people sometimes that we can't see what we're trying to read and we we often rely a lot on our memory and I know it's something that you've had to do and I was wondering if you could tell our audience some of the the things that you've had to do by utilizing the memory to deal with the the condition. When I think back on it I had an interesting time because I used to memorize everything even the school books, you know, I, I didn't read them anymore. I used to recite them just like that, boom. I mean, I, I can still remember one of them that we used as a first premiere in reading. Faye is gay as she plays in the hay. <laughs> <laughs> Another one you wouldn't want to use today, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I started to play the flute. And I started to get serious about playing the flute. And then my dad stepped in and he said, you know, you want to learn to read music all the time. Read, read everything. Stop playing everything from memory. And he sort of stopped me from playing from memory. Otherwise, I'd have been memorizing everything as I went along. Which actually you probably would have liked today. But I can, I can, understand, I can understand his worries. If you turn out for one rehearsal on the show, you really need to see what's going on. Yeah. I would get I would get the music well in advance of everything and learn it and play it. You know, it's it's amazing what memories come back to you. The other day I was listening to uh, to the Clock Symphony by Haydn, and I remembered learning it with my teacher John Francis, whose house I lived in, and he taught me all these Haydn symphonies, Beethoven symphonies, and all the all the things that I needed to have at my fingertips to have a career. It's amazing because you you just brought up something else as you were speaking in relation to something a lot of us do, and it's something we I want to be pointing out to to others. And I I know it's something that I did in my career, and I feel it's something that everybody should do anyway who's a professional. But getting there early, looking at stuff before, and having heard you say that that you got there to study it earlier, I also was was very punctual on things. I would always get to play is an hour before and you know people now when they found out afterwards that I had a condition said oh that explains why you used to do it but you know I feel professionals who who want to excel at anything should be that disciplined anyway exactly they should be there got it all ready done none of us coming in at the last minute and saying oh the number 39 bus didn't run today That actually takes me into the the next question because my condition, my nystagmus and everything that that went with it made me, I don't think I would have been, either I wouldn't have been a photographer or I don't believe I would have been as good a photographer if I hadn't had the condition because the condition made me see things in a different way than I would have done if I would have had regular eyesight. Do you feel the same, that it made you a better musician or it helped you? Exactly. I was always very well prepared for everything. 
I remember when I when I first got my I got a job in Covent Garden. The first piece that I had to play was uh, Don Carlos by Verdi, and I got the score like three weeks before and learned it absolutely down. And then I, I listened to the record of the opera, and when it came to doing it, it was no problem. Could you see the conductor from where you were sitting? Yes. Yes, it's a big black bulb. No, no, I know. <laughs> but it, when you were playing, it's just for me, I'm asking this question as a musician, but when you were playing in the pit, when it was dark, you played in the Royal Opera House. Yeah. Didn't you play in a dark pit? You know, yes. uh, for an opera, just for anyone who doesn't know, you know, you have your stage with all the singers and the orchestra's underneath, down low, where it's dark. Could you, I guess, because there was a light on. Yeah, no, we had lights on the stand. Yeah, yeah. But it does bring to to mind one situation in the, in the London Philharmonic, uh, the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Zubin Maida. Zubin was a pal of mine because I... I played in some of his very first engagements. And at this time, we were, we were playing Held in Leven by Richard Strauss. There's a sort of flute solo that goes, etc. And I said to Zubin, Zubin, could you do me a favor? Could you beat a little bit bigger so I can see what's going on? Mm-hmm. And he looked at the orchestra and he said, well, this is something new. I've often had deaf flute players, but this is the first blind one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we met Subin years later, and yeah, he he, meant, remembered, he remembered this. We he were in the dressing it. room, and he says the first time he met him, he saw he said he just saw this little head. Oh no, he just saw the music stand. He didn't see you. That was right. <laughs> I forgot that comment. That's very interesting. <laughs> did people know Sir James, like people that you were working with, or did people, you know, fellow professionals and conductors and things like that, uh, along the lines of this story? I think they did know that I had some something wrong with my eyes, but the ears and fingers were working okay. So <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> but it's also a great lesson for the younger members of the audience who are learning to deal and manage with the condition. And often, upsettingly enough, they're told of all the things they can't do. So they already have a, a mentality. You know, they Google nystagmus and say, well, you're never going to drive. You're never going to do this. You're never going to do that. And what we're trying to do is to show them stories which don't come much greater than yours of what actually can be achieved with with the right determination and not to use excuses that, you, you know, you can't see because you've proved it. And I guess to an extent, I've proved it as well. And the, other, the others like us, it's a very good lesson to, to, to people listening that should listen well. So we've spoken in relation to the different techniques. And as I said, I learned the technique of adjusting my head and, and the people that are watching us on uh, video, some people are just listening, some people are watching and some people are doing both, can probably see that my head tends to tilt to one side and the, the more harder the concentration is looking at the camera, looking at my notes, the more harder it is to stay in my position. But I did learn from you with the null position. How did you actually develop that? How did you you learn that? Did you did you just practice or you found what was most comfortable when you were playing? It just came upon me. When I would try to see something, I would move my head and say, oh, it's better that way. Mm. So eventually I got a way of playing that I was always looking at the music like this even though my head was in front looking at the conductor like this. I could see the music there. I mean, you actually put the music stand in a different place when you're in the orchestra, yes, don't I you? Did, yeah. Right, and this is what he's always telling <clears throat> young players, also how he sits in an orchestra. You'd always turn your chair also, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's incredible that you, you develop that by yourself because, again, it's not something that we're taught to do especially from from my generation and your generation before that you just adapted to it and and learned such a wonderful technique you mentioned last time that we spoke how hard it can be to find good ophthalmologists good eye doctors who really understand the day-to-day challenges of managing nystagmus could you elaborate a little bit on that that's the question to both of you yeah i can it's very difficult to get a good doctor who can interpret your eye test mm-hmm. correctly Yeah, to get the prism right. Because when you don't have it right, you see two of everything until you put your glasses on and 
wow. You see, the, oh, there's only one word. Does this other guy go? <laughs> I think also that you have to not be afraid to take a lot of time during the exam. And of course, if you have a a kid or someone young, they're not going to tell the doctor, I need more more time. You have to really realize that, that you need this, right? You've had yes. to really, yes. and we've had to go back many a time. Um, and now, of course, we're able, financially able to go to more, get more expensive glasses or, you know, they're not just through the insurance. And so, but even with that, it takes so much time. You had to bring the whole set back last time, didn't you? Yes, I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of people involved in, in getting glasses. One is the patient, the other one's a doctor, and the third one is the guy who makes the lens, mm-hmm. and he doesn't get it right all the time. Yeah, and then I think also you had to look at how you wanted a larger, because you wanted the, to be able to see both, right? So you wanted yes. the, so you had to get it much larger, and now, now you switched, and then yeah. you also had to look at the frames, because the lenses had to be heavy, Right. Yes. So we had to switch frames and go for lighter frames. So it's all this involved. But I think that what we've learned, and it'd be good if the younger uh, generation can learn, is that you have to take the time for it, and the, and that uh, go to somebody who's really very good. Right. You went to a real eye doctor. Yes. The first real good eye doctor I went to was in Moorfields Hospital in London. And uh, this was John France was my teacher there again. He brought me there, did the whole thing, and then then he explained it, that there's nothing to do. And that would have been on the NHS probably, so you can do it on a regular insurance. I don't know if they they had (laughs) it. Yeah, but it's also important for them to realize, too, I think you just have to push a little bit further, as you you know, of course. Yeah, it's something that, um, unfortunately, things are improving, but they're not improving quickly enough. And they're not, it tends to be, uh, from my experience, geography and luck. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're in the right place where there happen to be really good doctors who understand the condition and the luck is being able to get to see them. And, and most, most of those really good doctors, to see them on, on national health can take a very, very long time. And, and like you both said, it's very hard because it's not an exact science. It's not, people don't understand that it's not like going to the high street optician and getting an eye test and getting a prescription. And we, we need, you know, a lot of us can't actually adapt to, to any kind of lenses. And we certainly need more time and more help. And what we want to do is to make sure that people are able able to know where to go and and to not give up and to hear a story like this from the both of you is actually very helpful to know that even in your situation it's it's not easy and and this makes it easier for us to say to the doctors and the ophthalmologists you need to be doing more and hopefully that's something we're going to bring together with the help of all the appropriate people so it's an amazing help that you spoke about this do you do you actually have I mean I don't know it sounds like you haven't seen that many doctors throughout the course of your generally not just in relation to to glasses but in relation to to the whole condition do you have any wider disappointments or or hope for the medical profession regarding the condition and how things could improve from your experience I don't know how how I can speak on this particular subject. I mean, I think the parent is also a very important component, and they should really push to get to see the best doctors and to have regular tests. I mean, in my case, my nystagmus is congenital, so there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do about it. But I believe that now, when they see a child newborn with nystagmus, that they can undo the nerves, cut the nerves or whatever they do and wait a minute, link them up again and voila, you have, wow. you have it under control. It's, uh, it's rather like uh, resetting your computer. I think also that, um, you know, today the big advantage is, is that people can educate themselves more. You know, and so yes. here's the, the patient, which is maybe a young 14-year-old boy, and the parents. But that young 14-year-old boy should also educate, uh, 
look on the internet and learn a little bit about their condition <clears throat> and and be able to to understand not not just what other people have done to deal with it but what the problems are so that when they go in there they they know I can get a good pair of glasses I will be able to read this you know to feel positive with that I'm looking over here my husband has one two three he has a couple of pairs of glasses <laughs> because he has to for so, so this is also interesting for them too to know that like you have to have glasses just for music right yes because of the distance so we have these and this is also for maybe the teenager that uh, or for anyone working uh, we learned when we finally had someone very good working with us last time that actually he went in there with his flute <laughs> the person had an ipad with music and he held it and my husband would say where it was comfortable and then i would say well i think it's a little further when you're on the stage so we would try it that way and then they try it and then they gave him a book and and then they gave him a computer and things are different today for anyone visually whether you're reading a book which is close up or a computer which is what most of the kids are on so I think they have to take the time and the parents should really insist upon it and and if the boy wants to play sports you know as a young girl you know they can they just have to not be afraid and and I love that you're doing this because it just gives them that that strength to get out there hopefully and speak for themselves here's a question do contact lens make any difference? So my understanding is that for some people, they do help. The, the quality of the lenses has improved so dramatically in recent years that there are more people uh, with our condition that they are helping. Myself, it just didn't work. It, it was They kept steaming up and it, it just was no use to me. But they do help some people. But like what you said before, Sir James, is the, the younger, the better. If they're the right doctor and they get the right advice and they are able to start the contact lenses early on and adapt to them, they can be very useful. It's, a, it's, it's another option, but it doesn't work for everybody. It's like you spoke about the muscle surgery. The muscle surgery also is more for very young kids. I had that when I was 11 in, in the, you know, 1977, and it actually done more harm than good in, in my case. It's helped some people, but it's, it's not ideal. But I believe that the contact lenses, like the other lenses, will get better with the likes of us, you know, pushing the doctors to improve and that we're not just case studies is we're, we're people and, you know, not just to experiment on us, but actually to, to help us. And, and it was very valid what you said, Lady Galway, in relation to the kids as well, as well as us expecting help, but also helping ourselves. So James is a great example of that. He never expected anything and he did it all himself. And I was brought up very similar as well. But also, I think it's a balance. You've got to be tough, but you've also, we also need a bit more help. And there are a few very good doctors and I'm fortunate to be working with some of them at the moment but there are also still a lot that don't even know what nystagmus is and that worries me in 20 you know 2020 but your your advice is is wonderful what I would point out to the audience so James mentioned about congenital nystagmus um, because there's two types of nystagmus there's congenital nystagmus or it's now called often infantile nystagmus which is what Sir James and myself we were actually born with that condition as opposed to acquired nystagmus. Some people acquire nystagmus later in life uh, through a head injury or a stroke or multiple cirrhosis, which is even harder in a way because we, we don't really know any different. But the guys that acquire it, they're dealing with it after a whole life of driving and things like that. So I just wanted to point that out to the audience. I... Um, I, I like most people with a, a visual impairment uh, or, or who are partially sighted, have a, some some not too many. Fortunately, what we what we called at the time embarrassing stories, which we now call funny stories that we've that we've encountered. My my personal one, very briefly, was I was the personal photographer to a prime minister. You know the kind of job you'd expect from a blind guy, and we were in a convoy on our way to an election campaign and for reasons I won't go into right now, the convoy had to stop, which is a big operation for a prime minister. And 
the his chief of staff needed to come into the car I was in, uh, being driven by his deputy, and he was running towards the car because obviously things had to move very quickly because they weren't going to wait for us. And I went to go in the back, which meant I flung the passenger's door open in the front and I completely misjudged the distance that he was in front of me and he was carrying a plastic cup of coffee and the whole cup of coffee went up over his white shirt and you know this is the chief of staff of a prime minister and he was actually really good about it I was mortified but we've you know we've laughed about it now for many years and we we became good friends and I'm probably one of the only photographers to survive doing that to a chief of staff and carry on working but I was wondering if you you were happy to tell us a funny story that 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 happened to you in the course of uh your career and your day-to-day life. I mean, sometimes in concert where the lighting isn't good or something or the music stand isn't good and you'll um, misread the line or something, yeah, something like that, and you'll actually say something to the audience and stop and do it again and fix the lighting and fix the stand. But um, yes. it's probably been so many, but you always take things so lightly. My husband has this way that, you know, if something happens, you just kind of move on and get on with it. It must be a bit daunting, though, walking into a dark orchestra pit with lots of stands um, all, all close together and chairs close together. No, you'd be surprised how, how bright it is actually in the pit. Yeah. But sometimes backstage, that's difficult. It's yes. a pitch black. black they, <laughs> they like to make it. Uh, it's very it's they have the spot. Also, the spotlights. That's a big thing on the stage you have to work with. We t- always have to take a lot of time with the lighting on the stage. So it's not like for a, a, pop, a rock concert where you've got all the different colors. There's always just uh, the, the regular spotlights on there. But we have to do the lighting so that, well, first of all, that your face is in the light and there's no shadow. But lots of times they'll have it on and it will be blinding you, right? Yes. So that's a big, that's an issue that we always have to work on uh, for him particularly to really take the time on that. Again, it's saying to the person, you know, take the time with anything. And then backstage is pitch black. And you probably know this yourself. So backstage is pitch black. And then also sometimes they keep the stage black until you walk on. And that's when we have to kind of tell them, could we have a little light here and a little light here, right? Yeah. I was just thinking there a minute ago, if I ever do any concerts again, maybe I'll, I'll buy a small Bring a flashlight. Bring a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> you could, or get something on the end of your flute. That would be a, that would be very original. You have like lights on your flute so that if you, if you you're in the dark, you can get those lights like the kids wear around their necks, you know, that light up. And <laughs> get one of those. You could probably patent it. It's a, it's a, another way to make money during these times. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's no concerts, so what good is it? No, but hopefully things things will go back. Um, it's it's obvious to me what a dynamic duo you are together. And I'd like to actually ask um, Lady Galway a question. I know that you you know how completely lovable and charming us uh, us visually impaired guys are, but um, we we do have our moments of stubbornness and and certain other quirks that uh, maybe people who don't have the same condition have. And we've got a lot of families listening in uh, who who live with people with our condition. What would your feeling be about? or your advice to, to families and, and spouses and relatives that, that live with someone with, who's dealing and managing with a visual impairment? Well, I think the word that comes to, two words come to my mind, one is flexible and the other one is patient. And I think I've learned both over the years, the flexibility. Very good. She's, still, she's still learning, but she's very good. <laughs> I'm still good. at. Um, for instance, uh, lighting, that's a big thing. So I don't like bright lights. Now, we talked about the kind of bright lights that hurt my husband's eyes. But the other thing is he's he's a sunny person. So he, he likes bright lights. So he'll walk in a room and turn on the light. And he likes the light probably because he wants to see everything. That's really the reason. Yeah. Me, I don't like lights. So I immediately go in and I, we have a dimmer and I turn it down. And I or, get out and turn it off. Or if he... <laughs> Or if he comes in another way, and uh, like in the evening, uh, we'll be sitting, we'll have a little romantic dinner, we have our candles and things, and then we'll go into the next room, and what does he do but turn on the light? And I'll go, how can you do that? But I do it in such a joke, but it probably is because of this. Like, he just hits the light, and he just wants to see everything. But for me, 
I don't want to. And then the other thing is that we have found recently, because we moved to a new place, we used to have automatic, and this is important for safety. Safety is very important. We've had automatic lighting all the time in, in our last house. Um, and you, it's not expensive. You just put a, a sensor in where your light switch is. And so whenever you'd walk into a room, the light would go on. And this is so important because again, you know, it's the, uh, the shadows, the darkness. So what we've had to do here is I've gone out and bought spotlights and we've had them everywhere. And I did put one next to near the bed to help him. And it was driving me crazy. I couldn't sleep and everything. But then the other night he told me he read about sleeping and you're supposed to sleep with no light. And I was so happy, but, um, I think anyway, with anyone, um, you have to always take a step back. You have to take a step back and just be a little bit patient. And I think for a parent that uh, maybe has many children, and then there's that one children who's struggling to really find out what the problem is, because they might not be aware that it is the site. You know, maybe they're going through what you went through, um, where the kids were maybe making a little fun of them with this or that. And sometimes in the busyness of today with two parents working and all this, we have to always step back just a little bit more and uh, see what they're doing. And it is hard for parents with everything. Um, so, you know, we just... One thing I would yeah. like to mention is... What about your lights? No, yes, yeah, about my lights. <laughs> you know the light I have on my desk? Well, I can't stand that light. That's this a, is a really light. bad a light. Bright, That's a bad bright, light. Bright light. And if every you time, want to see what you're doing, get one of these. <laughs> and, and so he has one of those, and I have on mine a very mellow light because I just look into the computer. But he'll be looking in the computer, and there'll be a bright light here, and there's the other bright light. And when I walk in, it's got the slide that turns the light down, and I'll walk right over and say, "Hi, honey," and I'll put my foot on the slide and bring it down just a little bit. <laughs> I'm talking about that I light. know that was the second light. No, that other light, I can't stand that light. I walk out of the room. This other see. light is really high power. <laughs> and when you when you get it focused on a book, you don't have any trouble whatsoever reading the book. And you know those uh tablets you get for Kindle and stuff? iPad. Yeah. iPad, yeah. Yeah. And it says the dosage on the back, which is so minute I I don't even know if they have a name for the font. But I get this bright light on it, and with a magnifying glass, I can actually read it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it it actually is a struggle. We're laughing over here, but um, it is a struggle, and I and I see that with him also because um, that's why also we came in here today. The lighting is, is very good, and we're always adjusting the lighting. I think. <laughs> <laughs> we are all the time, yeah. right? Yeah, well, you are. Uh, also, another thing is on the computers. There's another thing. So um, this computer we're on, we've been using it for our internet projects. <clears throat> and the other day I said to my technician, because he works the computer remotely when we're doing our live streaming, I said, I really don't want to use the iMac. I'd rather use my husband's computer. He says, no, let's use the iMac. And we went back and forth, back and forth. I said, but I like my husband's. He says, well, the problem with your husband's is he has all the font on a different setting. And then I have to reset everything. And, you know, I forgot all that because there's another little thing that I don't have to do that he does. So I think all this energy sometimes that becomes natural for someone who has a, an impairment, let's say, or something, yes. you know, that... Um, it takes energy out of them, um, but there are solutions, and that's the that's the good news. And um, we're hoping to help with that, right, James? Yeah. What other funny things do you do? Hey, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's the lighting. It's definitely the lighting. <laughs> I think that you've you've captured very succinctly something that is prevalent with with all of us, and and some people just don't realise um, what what they need to do, and what now is actually available as opposed to when I was a kid and when Sir James was a kid. Uh, I, I mean, I think the hardest thing because I I wasn't. At, kind of out in the public because I was a professional photographer and I didn't think it was a good career move to tell, you know, the kind of clients that I was working for that I was actually legally blind until I was ready. Um, I, I thought it might not go so well. So I, I, I waited till I got to a certain stage of my career and, and then told them. So I spent a lot of time disguising things. But now, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to show it to you and to, to the audience, these are my, these are my notes on an iPad so you can see that the iPad is very very bright the, the writing is very bold and for those that are actually listening rather than watching that is what 44 point looks like 
Right. Okay. So the iPad is probably the single best invention for us. But again, it's it's like you said, adapting it to our own needs and, and knowing knowing what's out there. And I've only really learned myself in the last five years or so. And also when when we went over to film uh, to digital photography from film and we had to start using laptops and desktops and to learn how to change the font size and how not to have our nose against the screen when the picture editor walks in and, and, and asks, can't you see? So yeah, this is very important for, for the viewers. One other thing I was going to mention is what, what helped us a lot is we discovered those little portable LED lights we started putting on your, on your music stand. Yeah. So it looks really nice when you see, um, us playing in a church and you've got two flutes and we're all dressed up. We've got these gold flutes and music stands and they bring the lighting down. Even if there's a film crew, there's a nice songs of praise. We did that there. Remember that? That was, and so we discovered these little led lights that actually look like little eyes and that you can put them on the music stand and they're, they just fold over. So on my husband's music stand, he'll always need a set of two. There. I have an even better there idea. There it is. No, I you're not putting... Oh, remember your flash put, lamp on the put head? Put them on the head. Yeah, I know. And then I gave him for Christmas, actually, one year. I found it in a shop, and it was just a band around the head with a flash lamp on it. So because he was always... He likes to... You know, my husband says with the flute, he always had to figure it out. And I'm sure you also have this... <laughs> And so he's like this in technical things, too. If something doesn't work, he's always got to figure it out. So um, before everything was so interchangeable technically with computers and things, my husband would actually unscrew the something to put something together and then put the wires together. And he was always on the floor looking for a screw or something like that. So I got you that flash lamp on your head. Right. Remember? Right. Now, this brings me to a funny story. <laughs> you know, when I when when first came out using modems for the internet for uh, email, when you go to Germany, for example, the connections are different. And I, I used to carry a whole bunch of tools around, like a hammer and a screwdriver and a, a, a knife, so I could cut the things. And I'd memorize, I'd make a, a a mental note of of a room number, write it down, and they'd say, "Oh, oh I we're going back to that hotel. Got to get room forty four. I've already prepared the." the <laughs> I've already prepared it for my modem. It's it's things that people don't think about that they take for granted that we we have to be aware of. Yeah, it came in handy on the first time we went on tour with Jeannie. We went to Munich and she 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 didn't have something to plug her hairdryer. Yeah, he took. So I got all all my gear out, unscrewed the thing from the wall, screwed her. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know this side of you. I really didn't. So he's the person that always likes to figure things out. And I think that's a great quality to have. I do too. And I think it's very brave as well, because um, I, I don't like to touch anything electrical with my with my lack of sight. <laughs> So. No, no, no. I think let's all, we don't want to encourage that actually, James. <laughs> I don't know. No, no, that's, it's wonderful because it's something that can be done. It's just me personally, I'm I'm just not such a DIY person, but it can obviously be done because the James did it, right? So I'd like to, to, to kind of come to start to conclude. And obviously the last nine months for all of us has, has been an incredible upheaval and it's been really about adapting and adjusting to our lives through the coronavirus. And I understand that you've both, because obviously you haven't been able to tour um, like anybody else, and you've recently launched a new project called the Galway Flute Academy. And I'd love to hear um, a little bit about that. Go ahead, Jeannie. Well, the Galway Flute Academy actually <laughs> is, the, is the umbrella for all, all what we do. We love to uh, pass on my husband's teachings, and I also play the flute, so... Uh, and mentor and inspire really and it's become a real must during these this pandemic so we this Galway Flute Academy has had over the years it's actually been going for a while but what we've incorporated now is the whole online series which is called Live Learn so it's Live Learn with the Galways and um, this is our online series we started with one just giving um, hour-long workshops and classes and tips from my husband and myself called Home with the Galways and we did some virtual concerts like everyone was doing but now we've got something called Live Learn and with this everything's online 
basically we can't anymore have festivals and person-to-person masterclasses, but what we can do is keep everyone going. And that's really what the whole purpose of this is. And, and we, because my husband, what I has been so attractive to me over the years with my husband. And when I first met him as a young flutist, that he always had this generosity this generosity of spirit, this generosity towards uh, musicians and flutists of all ages and levels. Uh, a young kid, he'll just say, here, you want to try my gold flute, you know, and you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, and they just, they know this and this spirit, this wonderful spirit. So we're, uh, we're inspired again. And we went through our little lull in the pandemic, like everyone kind of thinking, oh, what are we going to do? What day is it kind of thing? And uh, being people of action, we just did this. So we started last Sunday. We just tried. We thought, well, let's just advertise a masterclass with my husband. And uh, this time we had to charge a nominal fee because we have to cover our staff's cost. And it sold out like that. So we were full to capacity with almost 100. And uh, we had four beautiful performers. And when we see the smiles on these kids, there's some technical challenges because the flute it has a very high frequency and the internet is great, but unless you have similar products and the speed and the bites and the, all this stuff. And, and one thing we also did was we took um, a remote, we have it remotely outside of our home. And again, when you talk about visual, it's the wires. We have to keep the wires way out of um, anyone who would walk over them, including my husband with his gold flute in hand. Because again, you know, it's another precaution that you have to take for anyone anyway. And you're having a great time, right? And Q&A you're doing with the kids? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we're going to have something called an audience (laughs) with uh, Sir James. And we're also going to have interviews where he's going to interview different colleagues, whether it's a jazz musician or it's someone who's in the field. You never know, David. And or it's a business person. We bring the business people in. We brought Howard Shore on last time who wrote Lord of the Rings and all the people he's collaborated with. And we just want to keep some kind of life and excitement going during this time because we we're blessed to have each other and. uh, um, we've had so much in our lives that we all have to work together to keep going. You know, it's it's not going to end tomorrow. So, you know, we all have to have a project, right? Absolutely. And and that's very important for our audience to, to understand that. So, James, Lady Jeannie, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I can't tell you, you know, I've been lucky enough in my, my career to meet and photograph you know, royalty, presidents, um, celebrities, uh, you know, everybody. But to have done this is maybe the greatest highlight of, of personally and professionally for me. So really, I can't thank you enough. And I'd love to take you up on your offer, uh, your kind offer for Sir James, um, if that's okay to, to play us out. And I'd like to be really cheeky because... Personally, Annie's song, um, from the time I was 12 years old in the late 70s, meant an incredible amount. First of all, I, I love John Denver, but obviously when Sir James recorded it, it meant a huge amount to me following, you know, the, the, the guy that was inspiring me. So if that's okay, we'd love you to, to, to play us out.
David, that was really amazing. Thanks so much, Aid. It really was, for me, an experience of a lifetime. I actually believe that this is the first time that Sir James has uh, shared his life story so personally. I really, really hope that, like myself, our listeners will be inspired by what they have heard and basically realise that there is no such word as can't. David, this has been a great opening podcast for the season. So let's all end up and sign off now by saying a big, big thank you to Sir James and Lady Galway. And of course, we hope the show has been of a great source of inspiration to not just you, but to everyone else and our new listeners following on. We'd like, of course, for everybody to listen and subscribe to the podcast on their own app or channel, whatever is going to be easiest for you. And please don't forget to give us a positive rating. So from now, it's goodbye from me, Adrian Silas, and David Katz, my co-host. And we'll see you next time around on The Blind Photographer.